Well, hello there. My name is Jeff Watson, and you are listening to the Inspired Minds Podcast. Really, really want to be a game show host. If there is anybody listening out there who is in the game show industry, I am ready and willing. Ready and willing, ladies and gentlemen. What a fun time I continue to have. There have been so many of these interviews flying in left and right now. From uh, courtesy of my good friend, Mr. Michael Lee Simpson, executive producer, good friend, writer at Backstage. That's a big deal. Industry rag stuff. He's a screenwriter. He's amazing. (laughs) I love that guy. Um, And he's been getting me these fantastic people. And we've been expanding into a lot of different people and themes and ideas. And um, I like to tell people these days that I'm kind of like, Somewhere in the middle of Johnny Fever from WKRP in Cincinnati slash David Lee Roth and then Dick Cavett on the other side. So somewhere in the middle of Dick Cavett and Johnny Fever from WKRP in Cincinnati. Aspirational goals, friends. So my friend did tell me, again, that we have uh, being listened to globally, apparently. And every once in a while, I will be doing an international high five little section of the show tiny one, where I'll call out a particular country that is apparently listening to the sound of my voice, and I will give you some fantastic information about said country. This one will be the lovely green Ireland. Ireland, ladies and gentlemen, and as always, I shall play the national anthem. Please stand. Unless you're driving, that might be bad. Nevertheless, hand on your heart, whatever they do, and we're off. Here we go. It's kind of like the Pogues. Really Shane McGowan going on. Ireland! Turns out that you guys invented uh, Halloween. Go figure. That's kind of rad. Uh, 10 million pints of Guinness are produced in Dublin every day. Or as I used to call Guinness back when I used to drink, a meal in a can. <laughs> I got me to college. Um, here's an interesting one. Apparently... People in uh, Ireland created the boycott because the boycott was a man, a land agent called Charles Cunningham Boycott in 1880. He was such an asshole, apparently, that all local shops in the town refused to serve or even deal with the guy. And his last name was indeed Boycott. A couple more hits. Uh, the first potato was planted there. That is not a shock. And finally, they do have you two. Personal favorite of mine when I was 15 years old. They get a lot of shit. I don't appreciate it. I'm a YouTube apologist. Tell my hip friends. That's my rant. Goodbye, Ireland. And on to this interviewee, Miss Janet Batchelor. She was a great interviewee, too. Um, she's the owner of Make Believe Films, and she's a consultant, and she's a screenwriter. Also, actually, uh, teaches at USC, which is where I went to school. Go Spartans, or whatever the hell. I never cared. Um, she had written the script for a little movie called Batman Forever. So we got the uh, chance to talk about the duality of the characters and Harvey Dent, because I'm a dork and I like this kind of stuff. Um, we talked about her. She has a script called Jack and Dick, which is amazing. Uh, I got a chance to read it. And it's about Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson. It's about Jack Kennedy and uh, Dick, Richard Nixon, and the famous debates in the 60s and how they were originally friends and they kind of played off each other. Uh, really interesting. And we also discussed the greatest script around, which is Galaxy Quest. Galaxy Quest. 
featuring Tim Allen and Sigourney Weaver and Alan Rickman and Sam Rockwell. And that movie is fantastic. Apparently, David Mamet, the great David Mamet, thought it was a perfect script. And I cannot disagree. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did making it. Talk to you later. Have a nice day, evening, morning, 4 a.m., wherever you are. Goodbye. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inspired Minds podcast. I have the lovely and talented Janet Batchelor on the line. Janet, say hello if you can. Hi, everybody. Hello. <laughs> it's, I'm so glad to have you on this thing. I'm a big fan of scripts. I'm a script nerd. I've never written one in my entire life, but I love seeing the pacing. I read scripts all the time. So I'm extremely excited to get into this. And as I mentioned earlier, storytelling is my thing. I'm, and we can go into that, obviously. But with the uh, first question that I have out of the gate, is what was the first thing that you can remember as a kid that inspired you, Janet? Was it a film, movie, or song, uh, book, person? Wow, that is a great question. You know, I started reading really young. I don't remember not being able to read. I don't remember decoding things or, at all. So I'm sure it was a book. Uh, I wasn't allowed to watch much TV, didn't go, wasn't allowed to see many movies, but I read all the time. I read 10 books a week. Wow. I checked books out of the library every Saturday. We went with my family and I, I read 10 books a week. So I'm not sure that I can point to a specific thing, but I think it was just that constant inflow of new material to read and also old material and realizing that there were certain books I wanted to go live through one more time. And I, I think that's really what inspired me. I, I, the first thing I remember writing would have been around third grade. I started writing little plays hmm. and really bad poetry <laughs> in third grade. You know, that was just something that was always part of my life. Um, not one big inspiration, but just sort of a constant flow of of story coming through my life, you know, curled up in bed, you know, reading through the, the crack uh, in the window, the window shade when I wasn't supposed to be up yet. That's really where where my inspirations began. What a lovely memory. My God, what detail. I love it. That's fantastic. Oh, thank you. Was there a certain kind of, let's say when you were in third grade uh, and you were writing, was there a certain kind of genre that you kind of realized you were writing later or was it just anyway? You know, I just, I wrote a bunch of just really bad plays, <laughs> little, little short plays. I don't know why I gravitated to plays rather than stories. And I suspect that I probably wrote some stories too, but what I remember writing is, is plays and, you know, sometimes trying to get people to put them on, but I didn't really live in a world where that was possible. Um, but th that's what I did, uh, was, was write little plays or I'd, you know, I'd, I read plays too at the time and I wrote a lot of things that were re really derivative or I would try to write the play version, uh, of Harriet the Spy or A Wrinkle in Time or one of those books. 
but I try and just rewrite it as a play. That's I don't know that there was ever any real genre that I indulged in. Uh, I I read what I could find, and I was limited by what was at my local library. Sure. Uh, so so I read pretty much everything I could find there. I read a lot of juvenile science fiction at the time. Huh? Uh, I read a lot of books. Judy Bloom. Uh, no, I didn't read any Judy Bloom. They, they, she must not have been in my library. Uh, I read a lot of books by British authors. Somehow I gravitated to those. Hmm. Uh, and I read, you know, books about kids in the performing arts and sort of books about magic, where there was magic in them. Wow. Those were the things I gravitated towards. Uh, and I just read them over and over again because I didn't have a big selection to choose from. Well, then that leads to the next question, I suppose. That is, when... This is a hard one to answer, but an easy one to ask. When do you think you kind of hit your stride as a writer? Oh, my goodness. I'm not sure I really have hit it. I knew you would say that. Sorry to be predictable. (laughs) Um, You know, I didn't grow up in a world where people said to girls, you should think about being a writer. It just didn't happen. It just wasn't available to me as an option. So I was writing all the time. You know, I was the kid who was happy if there was an essay question on a test. <laughs> because even if I hadn't read the material, I could get a B plus just by bluffing. Oh, just yeah. Because it would be well written. Yeah. Um, you know, I was the kid who wrote the the show in, you know, in middle school. I, I wrote the, the school performance, uh-huh. but didn't get credit for it. It just wasn't the kind of it, nobody did that in uh, in college. Uh, at one point, you know, you start thinking about oh, you know, there might be a life after school, and what do I do? And I went to the career center, and I started reading all the material they had on freelance writing. And the re- career counselor said to me, "Well, why would you look at that?" And I thought, "Oh, I guess that's not a legitimate thing." Huh. So I, it took me a while to realize that actually this was a thing somebody could do and that maybe I could do it. That's a, I love stories like these. That's why I love asking this question, by the way, because I got a story out of it immediately. And That's I, a great question. Thanks. Thanks. There's more coming. So I think what's interesting, too, is and I just kind of realized this, that, and, and this could be wrong, but... You know, you're talking obviously a second ago about kind of not really having a genre necessarily and kind of going all over the map with your early reading and writing. And I just realized that that has sort of carried over into your professional career solely because a lot of your films seem kind of radically different. And I'm wondering if there's a kind of a thread through it, like Running from Grace, you know, it's like seemed like a Hawaiian kind of Romeo and Juliet story. Well, I didn't write that. I was just a producer. I understand now. Yeah. But okay, so let's. I really want to jump into this one, actually. Maybe I'm kind of jumping in a bit early on this one, but uh, Jack and Dick, which was the, uh, right. which is the thing that, that you sent over. And what an incredible concept. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because as I mentioned, I'm a massive political fan, and I kind of like the interplay that you had with both Jack and Dick. Well, thank you. So uh, we would love to see that get made. It was set up and ready to go with Australian financing. And then we couldn't 
complete the casting with Australian actors. This, so it, it sort of slid apart very slowly, uh, just as the pandemic was starting. Um, this is the story of uh, it, the Kennedy-Nixon election and debates of 1960. Uh, and looking at it from the point of view of really the dissolution of what used to be a friendship between Jack Kennedy and Dick Nixon. And we, we, I wrote this with my writing partner, uh, Lee Batchelor, and we dove deep into the history of both the men mm-hmm. and wanted to sort of highlight that moment in time uh, where politics came became centered on appearances. I think it's really uh, very well known. You know, these were the first presidential debates ever that were on TV. And I think it's pretty well known that the people who watched the debate on TV thought that Jack Kennedy won. Because he looked good and he came across well and he paid attention to some of the things that now would be automatic, like what do I wear when I'm on TV? Mm -hmm. Uh, And the people who listened to the debate on the radio thought Dick Dixon won because he had a wonderful speaking voice. And you weren't looking at this guy being consumed by flop sweat under the heat of the lights. Uh, And and so that was sort of a pivotal moment for American politics. And, you know, the way we thought, it's also really, this was a moment where Dick Nixon was, we think, trying to do the right thing, and the right thing didn't work. And where he sort of made a commitment that winning was more important than anything else. Mm-hmm. And reverted to his the old tricky dick persona that he'd been known as before. And, and so we just found that, that moment, those few months uh, around the preparation for the, uh, uh, for the debates and the election to be really fascinating and dug deep in, in our research. And, and, you know, hopefully someday somebody will pluck that up and say, we're not tired of politics. This this actually gives us gives us some revelation and understanding of why things are the way they are right now. Yeah, <laughs> you're absolutely right about that. I got to say that I was honestly shocked by reading your or in reading your script that Nixon pulled out references of like Tocqueville. Yeah, I had no idea. No, these were both really smart, really well educated guys in a time. When that was not seen as a detriment, nobody was really trying to be the man of the people uh, at that point. You know, there, there was no real populist strain happening in politics at that point. And they it, and to have a discussion about political theory was not seen as a negative thing. Huh. Um, so, yeah, they, they both they both really knew their stuff. They did their homework. Yeah, although unfortunately, uh, Dick had uh, what was that like shave stuff that they like? He didn't take the visuals of the debate as seriously as perhaps he should have, and and it hurt him. Yeah, it demol it, it demolished him as far as I understand. I mean, I think his ratings ratings well, yeah, ratings plummeted. Um, he didn't. Yeah, he didn't do well. 
There were times when the election was very, very close and, and that, the, that first debate was not, was not good for him. No. And, you know, I was, I'm sure you've, maybe you've even seen the documentary, but obviously you're aware of the Buckley-Gore debates that came a bit later. Quite a bit later. Yeah. 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 And I, you know, I was watching the documentary on that and just, I, I remember watching it thinking, my God, this would never happen today. Are you kidding me? Because if I'm not mistaken, I think it was like ABC was about ready to go down the tubes. And then it was like a last minute Hail Mary of getting those two intellectuals up on, up on stage. And if I'm not mistaken, I think it was like five nights or something like that in prime time. And it was a huge success. Yeah. I don't know that you could do that now. Absolutely not. Not with, yeah. not with Twitter, not with, you know, Fox, not with it, really anybody. It's just all these shorter and shorter bites that you got to fill a 24 hour news hole. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and I don't know that people would sit still for something that word driven, that it's just two people talking. I don't know that we'd have the, uh, the patience for that anymore. Absolutely. Or it would just have to find uh, a more niche. I mean, uh, certainly it, it could be done as a podcast. It could be done in a different venue. I think it would just have a much more niche audience now than, than a network, assuming people will want to watch this in, in prime time. Yeah, I, I'm a huge Gore Vidal fan, so. <laughs> okay. Like, say, say another cutting thing. You're brilliant. Right. Because <laughs> the thing, too, is like, actually, I just noticed this because Buckley and Gore, even though they loathed each other, they kind of needed each other. And I think Jack and Dick gave you the same idea. No? Um, you know, they didn't really loathe each other quite yet. They appreciated each other, and I think they were in an era where you could get along with your rival, where your rival didn't become necessarily your enemy. You know, now I think outside of sports, certainly in politics, um, people turn rivalry into enmity, uh, where in sports you're allowed to say, well, this dude's my friend. He just plays for another team. So we're rivals on the field, but we can still be friends after the game. Um, and, and I could get traded at any time, and then maybe we wouldn't be rivals. Um, I, I don't know that we still have as great a, a an acceptance of the idea that you can be rivals and friends at the same time. Uh, we now, certainly in politics, we want to turn rivals into enemies immediately. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, you know, I, I think we're writing about an earlier era and maybe about the beginnings of that era starting to change. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, there's such a tribalization going on more and more in this country, obviously. I think it has so much to do with social media. Social media certainly fuels it. It, yeah. it certainly fuels it. I, I don't know that that's where it began, but... no. It's a great tool for separating people. I'm going to move on from this topic in a second, but I think it's I just blindingly ironic that we have a tool that is designed to connect, and yet it breaks us up. It divides us completely. Yeah, it, it can, but it can also connect. I mean, I have, I'm sure you have. I've reconnected with people I hadn't seen in years through social media. I've made connections with people I would never have met otherwise who I consider to be true friends or our online connection has turned us into true friends. Um, I've learned things about people online 
uh, people that I barely knew, that I knew in person, but barely, and they've become some of my best friends as a result of it. So, you know, it, re- it really is a tool. Exactly. You know, a hammer could be used to drive a nail and build something, and a hammer could be used to come up behind somebody and bash them in the head. So it's really about what are we doing with the tool that we have. Absolutely. And speaking of tools, let's go back to movies. Um, okay. I do, kind of, do uh, want to ask and talk about the, uh, the Batman uh, Forever script. Okay. Because, you know, it's interesting. I've, you know, I, I watched it in 95, or I think it was 95, like everybody it else. It was 95, yeah. Yeah, and I, I loved it. I'm a big Batman fan. I, I was a, I'm a big Val Kilmer supporter, so I thought that was a nice casting on someone's part. But I thought what was, I thought was interesting in kind of re-watching it, I rewatched it a couple of nights ago before this, and it's the duality of not only Batman, but also then Two-Face, which I thought was interesting. That the, At least this is my interpretation, that it really the, the script seemed to really hone in on Batman's duality. And as it relates specifically then as a counteracting point to uh, Two-Face, was that something that you were kind of heading for? Absolutely. And bravo to you for picking that up. Um, that was really how we got the job. Uh, because we were asked to come in. Um, Tim Burton was still involved, not as the director anymore, but was involved still as a producer. And he had to sign off on us. So he wanted to just hear us talk about Batman as part of that. And that is exactly what we said. We said, the heart of Batman is duality. We said, you know, if you look at Superman, yes, Superman is Clark Kent, but everybody else is one person. Lex Luthor is always Lex Luthor, and Lois Lane is always Lois Lane, and Jimmy Olsen is always Jimmy Olsen. Uh, It's only Superman who has this dual identity, whereas in the world of Batman, just about everyone has a dual identity. Batman is Bruce Wayne, yes, but uh, you know, Robin is Dick Grayson or whichever iteration of Robin you want to have. Uh, you know, Harvey Two-Face is Harvey Dent. Um, you know, the Riddler has two sides. Catwoman has two sides. Yes. You know, she's Selena Kyle or she's whoever. She, you know, they're different alter egos for some of our, for some of our characters, but they are all bifurcated. They all have a dual identity. And that is the heart of Batman is the duality. And after we said that, Tim Burton just sort of went, yes. (laughs) And that we knew that was the moment that we got the job. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, absolutely. We wanted to lean into the duality in every way we could. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of Jung's uh, shadow work. Hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That that inherent duality that we all have. Yes. Exactly. But to bring that onto screen as a metaphor with the big comic book stuff and Joel Schumacher and, it just, you know, the over-the-topness of it, which I thought was fantastic, but at the heart of it really was that duality that I found. And that's also why we chose a psychiatrist as his love interest, was we wanted to sort of give as many venues as possible for probing that duality. That makes absolute sense yeah. as, a, uh, as a budding therapist now. <laughs> yes, you would be the one to, to tell me if that works. So Sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So here's the next, actually, you mentioned a second ago about working with your husband. And I was curious, how does the creative flow work with two people or more? Now, obviously, with your husband, I would assume that you have a good flow, and that would be really important in a collaborative environment. Um, It totally depends on the project. Um, You know, we, we will 
we have different strengths. We're very yin and yang in it, when it comes to our strengths and weaknesses. Uh, so we'll talk stories and character over forever uh, and, and really dig in. But then we pretty much go into our separate offices and work when we're actually writing and, and trade. Um, we trade pages back and forth mm. is, is really what we do. So, you know, flow, sometimes yes. Sometimes that flow consists in negotiations. We will, I'll give you that line if you give me oh. this. So it, it really depends on the project. Uh, sort of how we approach it, who takes the first draft. Usually he'll take the first draft because he tends to overwrite and I tend to pare things down. Um, and those are just our strengths. Um, you know, he'll write the long wordy speech that we don't need. And I'll say, this is the one line that matters, but it's going to be better if we do it this way or if we move it here. Uh, so, so we go back and forth and we will typically write at least five drafts huh. back and forth between us before we put the words first draft on a script. It has been up to nine or 10, but it's usually at least five. Interesting. Yeah. Here's a question uh, kind of based off that, I guess. How do you find the story or does the story find you? Um, so let me ask what you mean by that. Do you mean how do we choose what story we're going to tell? Or once we've chosen what story we're going to tell, how do we find the actual story? Well, uh, I'm going to parry with this. Um, I remember reading an uh, interview with Keith Richards and someone asked him, how do you write a song? What, how does that work for you? And he said that you have to be a lightning rod, that the story, the song, is out there floating around and you need basically be in tune in order to find the song. And I guess the analogy would be the same thing. Uh, cause my, th at least with my creativity, cause I'm an artist and I do stuff is that I only find it when I'm in tune with, you know, at peace centered. Um, and I just kind of maybe meditate or whatever the hell I do. And then it comes to me. But I know everyone's process is completely different. Okay. That's, uh, that's so interesting. Okay. Uh, I think often there are stories. So it happens in a bunch of different ways. There are times when, you know, the muse is speaking and you just understand what a story wants to be and you start your work on it and things fall into place. Uh, but, you know, the muse is a fickle bitch <laughs> and doesn't always show up. And sometimes you just sort of power your way through. And, you know, I, I teach screenwriting as well. And so I've developed a lot of techniques to help my students find their stories. And so I'll just fall back on what I teach and I'll say, well, now I'm going to try this technique and find my story and make it work. Uh, and, and I think what I look for is I like the moments when all of a sudden the pieces start to fall into place. You know, that moment, if you're, if you're creating a puzzle or you're doing your wordle in the morning um, and uh, all of a sudden, things that weren't clear become clear. 
and they fit together. And you realize that there are things that fit together that you didn't even know were going to be part of the story. That's what, sort of the moment that I hope for, uh, where all of a sudden you're like, oh, and we could do this and we could do this. And you found it's sort of you've tapped into an underground river and you, you've been searching for water and maybe you found a little trickle here and a little trickle there, but all of a sudden you find the river and everything starts flowing. That's, I think, the moment uh, where you know you really have a story worth going on. I have several stories where I've been like, this is such a good idea and I haven't been able to get past the first act. It's like, I know the ending, I know the first 30 pages, but I can't connect them. And, and they've just never come together. Uh, and others, you see them from beginning to end and you you know what they are and it's exciting and and you're off to the races. I think it's interesting that you just discussed, <clears throat> excuse me, discussed, uh, you know, playing word role or playing a puzzle game because from a neurobiological standpoint, God, do I sound pretentious? You know, your, your brain is at rest at that point, your repetition and all that. And I think that, come to think of it, that might be, a, again, analogous back to the lightning rod. I think it might be. You know, it's, it's, it's the old, and I mean, as a therapist, you'll, you'll know all about this. You, you can tell me all the parts I don't know. It's the, the bed, bath, bus thing about the back of your mind being active when you're just waking up or just falling asleep, yeah. uh, when you're in the shower, when you're in the car, when you're doing something else, the creative part of your brain is still at work. I am very, very um, jealous at times uh, of my husband, whom I often write with, uh, because he will solve story problems in his sleep. And he will wake up and say, I know the answer. Sure. Here's what it is. And it will be right. Like, I encourage my students, you know, if you should be on public transportation, just put your phone away for a while. You know, yeah. go ahead, take that long shower and let, let the, the back burner of your brain do some work. You know, there, there are times, you know, turn off the podcast in the car. And just Except for this one. Except for this one. Not this one. Not this one. <laughs> but just think. Just think for a while. Yeah. You know, we all need time to think. And I think that that's one thing that the internet steals from us. Yes. And we have to be really careful to protect that time and to protect that unfocused thinking time. You know, uh, when you're going for your run or your walk, maybe you don't need the AirPods in feeding you something to listen to. Maybe your brain doesn't need to listen to anything. Maybe it needs to work on um, the things that haven't been coming together when you're sitting in front of a screen. I, I really encourage that time. There was, a, there was a time when my son was probably in about fifth grade, fourth grade, something like that. And uh, in his uh, advanced English class, they had to do timed rights. So you have an hour, write a story in an hour. And they'd give them some kind of a prompt. And there was one time uh, I knew he had started his time to write. And I came out of my office and found him walking in circles in the dark living room, just walking in circles. Uh, I was like, aren't, aren't you supposed to be 
you know, don't you have a timer going? Are you supposed to be doing your writing prompt? And he said, I am. I'm thinking. Uh-huh. I was like, good, good, good. You're there working. You go. <laughs> that is working. Do it. Do it. Yeah. I'm out of here. Yeah. So. I, I, I love that kind of. I'm so fascinated by the artistic process from each because uh-huh. it's always individual by, by definition, you know? And we can learn so much from other people's processes. Um, they're just, you know, people will have just little things that jog them in some way that that are so useful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's why, to be honest with you, that's really the secondary gain or maybe the gain for me on this podcast is I get to be an eternal student in all kinds of different uh, different areas. Like I think I mentioned, I just talked to two neuroscientists and a rabbi about addiction and the meaning of life. And, you know, and it's that I'm grateful for the humility that I have to be able to learn. That's really fascinating. I love that. It's an important thing these days. Got to be humble. (laughs) It's basically service and humility. That's kind of my, my thing, but it's also about movies because I'm a big movie dork. Um, Right. Which reminds me, I'm just going to ask this question. What are your top five scripts? You got to answer five. You have to. Top five of my own scripts or of other people's scripts? Anybody, yours, anybody's. Well, give, give me, define that one for me. Tell, <laughs> tell me. It's okay. I will yeah. give you mine. I will give you mine. Here we go. Network, no question. There will be blood, no country for old men, breakfast at Tiffany's, and I would say, um, oh, God, uh, another Patty Chayefsky. Uh Oh, my God, Marty, maybe. Okay, okay. Um. I would say Groundhog Day. Oh, nice. Uh, Little Miss Sunshine. Oh, great. Uh, Casablanca. Of course. The Social Network. Good one. And, wow, finding one to plug in, you know, I'm going to go with Galaxy Quest. Oh, my God. What a fantastic call. You, that is the greatest thing I've heard on all of these podcasts so far, and perhaps never again will it get that good. Well, thank you. Just, <laughs> It's sort of brilliant. You know that David Mamet has chosen it as one of what he considers four perfect movies. Are you kidding? Yes, he considers it a perfect movie. Wow. I had no idea. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I got uh, Sam Rockwell and uh, Sigourney Weaver and Alan yes. Rickman. And, was it Alan yes. Rickman? Yeah, it was Alan, Alan Rickman. Absolutely. Uh, uh. Yes. That's the better thing, too, about these interviews is, like, my movie list is <laughs> insanely huge now. <laughs> like, Raging Bull! Oh, I bet. I uh, bet. I bet. Just wonderful. Um, what do you tell students if they want to break into the industry with scripts? Well, first, I defer to Steve Martin and his brilliant response to somebody who asked him, how do you, how do you make it big in show business? And his response was, be so good, they can't ignore you. And I think that's sort of what it boils down to, is it's, there are a lot of people who can be almost good enough, but it's a world where the supply is far greater than the demand, and where, sadly, people are often treated as disposable. Uh, And I think you just have to find a way that makes yourself stand out. Um, and for some people, that isn't going to happen. Uh, and then they have to decide, you know, what are they really going for? Do they, you know, I know people who have moved 
to the Midwest and they're making movies in the Midwest for small local audiences and they raise the money and that is how they make a living and it's sort of a wonderful life for them. Uh, but and there are people who would not be happy doing that because they really are drawn to sort of the siren's call of Hollywood. Yeah. And, and, and there's so many people who crash and burn on, you know, the cliffs of Hollywood, trying to storm the cliffs of Hollywood. Yeah. Um, so it really comes down to what are you trying to do? Are you, you know, are you trying to be rich and famous? Are you trying to, uh, are you trying to, um, just make the art that you love. And then for some of us, the art that we love tends to be the kind of project that is big and expensive to make. And that's just what we love. Sure. Um, so, so there's, there's a lot of, of, I think figuring out what is really going to matter to you. And also what are you good at? Mm. Um, and, and sort of finding that intersection of what you love, what you can sell, what you can shine at, and what the world really needs. Sometimes you don't get all of those together. Um, you know, I feel very, very humbled and blessed to have been in a position where once in a while those things have come together. A lot of people don't get there. I, I would say a couple of things. I would say that, sadly, Hollywood is a world for the young. Mm-hmm. And you'd better start early. And, you know, the people who... Uh, certainly, you can be a writer if you decide that's my second career and I'm 49 and that's going to be my second career. Absolutely, you could be a writer, but you may not be able to be a screenwriter simply because, unjustly, the doors aren't going to open sure. uh, in the way that they will for somebody who's 25 or 26. Oh, yeah. Why do you think I'm a therapist now? I oh, to, I'm sure. I used, I'm sure. Vice, I used to be a vice president at yeah. his Records, and yeah. you know, there are other reasons why I got out, but part of that was it. Like, what am I going to do? They're going to pay somebody you know, a third of what I'm making and they're going to be better at their job because they're just younger and it's digital marketing, you know? Yeah. Well, see, see, so you get that. So my son is a musician Uh, um, and he is actually on tour with his band in Germany as we speak. What's his band? Love Ghost. Love Ghost. Shout out to Love Ghost. You heard it here first. Yeah, they're an emo trap band uh, on tour through Europe right now. I think they're in Hanover today. It might be Hamburg. Anyway, they're they're on tour. They played the Rock Palace Fest, uh, Crossroads Festival last weekend, and they're continuing their tour. They're coming back a little early because the tour was taking them to Ukraine. And so let's just say they had a whole lot of dates that had to be canceled, sadly. Um, so Vladimir Putin has taken money out of my son's pocket. And so it's quite personal. Um, anyway, uh, but, you know, there is no real career path to be a rock star, um, but he's in a band that's doing an international tour. Yeah. I think they may have a California tour coming up in a couple of months. Um, he's, you know, they have a record label behind them. Right. And, and, you know, I look at that, and I'm like, well, do that. Do that in your 20s. Yes. This is the time to do that yep. is when you're you're in your mid-20s. Um, and, you know, maybe it'll happen. And I listen 
you know, when I've had a chance to listen, I listen to his work and he's producing music for, for other bands. And I'm like, wow, wow. You know, I hear what you're doing and it's good. So do it now. And, you know, when you hit your thirties, if you're still at the same place then that you're at now, then maybe we'll have the talk about law school, but this is the time to do it. Yes. So, so I, I encourage people to start young, uh, but also to sort of say, wait, if yeah. it hasn't happened after a few years, maybe it isn't going to happen because I also know people who have spent 20 or 30 years of their lives pounding at a door that isn't going to open. Yeah, I know. And and this is your life. It's your life. Is that what you're going to be? Are you going to be happy to have pounded at the door for that long? And for some people, they'll say yes. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, my best friend used to run the Warner Brothers TV workshop, which is really, uh, uh, this is some years back, but it, this is, it's the premier workshop for sort of launching people into the industry. And we had a mutual friend who got accepted into the workshop and went through it. And at the end of it, I said, so our mutual friend, is he going to be a TV writer now? And my best friend said, no, it isn't. So, but he went through the Warner Brothers workshop. He said, yeah. He said, but you really need to be at about working at about the 95% level uh, to be able to work. And I think he, uh, he's capped out at about 85%. And I don't think he's going to get any better. Yeah. And maybe 10 years after that moment, I was in a group where people were sort of having a discussion of, you know, what do you wish you had been rescued from? Ooh. And this guy said, wasted time. And I thought, oh, he wow. knows. Yeah, he, he knows he's wasted his life. Yeah. He knows. Uh, so I, I think throw yourself into it and learn what you can and realize that there is a lot to learn. Nobody does this by instinct. It's hard. Especially writing is hard. It is not easy. Screenwriting is not easy. So you have a lot to learn and, and throw yourself into it, but set a time limit as to how long you will pursue uh, if nothing is happening. I, I got to agree. Hey, before I forget, I'm going to give one more shout out to Love Ghost. Oh, I love it. Thank because, you. Because I'm looking at photos of them right now currently. Um, there's a lot of hair going on. I, I, I approve of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, is your son the lead singer? No, my son is the keyboardist. What does he look like? I'm looking at a photo right now. Uh, blonde. Um, at the moment, he has a mustache, but not all the photos. The mustache is a recent development. Okay. Um, uh, you know, blonde hair shaved on the side. Oh, I see him. Yeah. Looking at him right now. Yep. Love goes love. Go- I'll, I'll, I'll promote anything. I'm sure this is great. I used I to love be, it. I, I, love used it. Be, I used to be the emo king of uh, promotion back at Warner Brothers. They did like My Chemical Romance and Taking Back Sunday. Oh, and perfect. I was a guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, there there was Priority Records. So. Oh, Priority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Friends of mine that used to work there. Um, well, I want to kind of wrap this up a little bit, but I want to ask uh, my favorite question. This is the for all the all the marbles, Janet. Okay, let's hear it. Final Jeopardy question. I ask everybody the this question at the end. 
As a creative, when do you know that you are done? Wow. I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. Um, I, I think that there are times, sometimes other people might tell you you're done. I don't know that yet because I don't feel that I'm done. I think, what a great question. Um, I think there are times you might be done with one thing and not with something else. So I don't think I'm done with screenwriting at all. I'm prepping right now for a major studio pitch in two weeks. So, so that's not that. But let me just say that during the pandemic, I could not write a screenplay. I just felt like my industry is closed down. Hmm. And so I wrote a play and I wrote a novel. So I wasn't done, but I was certainly on hiatus. My, the screenwriting part of my brain wasn't willing to work while we were all shut up. Um, and I found that a really interesting mode to be in. That was new for me. So maybe it's sort of like that. Maybe your ideas just go in a different direction. I'm going to have to think about that question now. Um, I'm very happy to tell other people when I think they're done. <laughs> I mean, um, I'm, Get out. I'm pretty good with that. <laughs> but I, I don't think I've experienced it. And honestly, I sort of feel like um, the, the idea of retirement never occurred to me. I, I would hear, you know, my friends talking about, oh, my parents are going to retire. And I'd be like, huh, what is that? Yeah. Um, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe if you have the job that's the nine to five job and you punch a time clock, you fill out a timesheet and you know what your paycheck is every week, maybe you know when you're done from that kind of job. I've been a freelancer my entire life. So you're really never done. Because you're, you're working on the weekends and you're working on the holidays and taking a vacation. You're walking down the, the beach in Hawaii and all of a sudden you get an idea and you need to run back because, of course, your computer is with you. You wouldn't. Be <laughs> and you have to jot something down because you've had an idea. So so I don't have an answer for that. Really great question. Well, maybe episode two. Well, um, right, right. right. <laughs> thank you. Honestly, thank you. So, oh, and I would be completely remiss if I didn't do the following. If because I want to, I got to do this. Forgive me. I apologize a thousand times, but you ready? Here we go. Da 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 da. Batman. Right. <laughs> I mean, that wasn't our Batman, but I, know. I, but I will take it. <laughs> I got to look at least you know in the presence of somebody who wrote a script about Batman. I have to do that. That's all I can do. Um, yeah, I, I, I've realized that I do have a very, very unusual relationship with Batman. Who tell? Um, you know, because there's only a handful of people. Um, I mean, there's actually, it's a big handful going back, you know, through the world of the comics. But this, this is a character that has lived in so many facets and on so many platforms but there aren't that many people who have gotten to live batman from the inside and that's really a privilege absolutely to, to have gotten to be the tiniest part in that modern mythology and it is a great honor to be able to sing that dumb song to you. <laughs> um, I'm going to do one last thing here, which is I always forget in the beginning when we talked before we recorded, I, I got to remember this stuff, but 
Um, we're going to do a little acting right now, you and I. We're going to pretend to say goodbye, and I'm going to quote-unquote hang up the phone, and then we're going to talk about after and say goodbye officially okay. to each other. Perfect. Okay. I'm ready. Okay. Act And action. Uh, Janet, thank you so much for doing this thing. I mean, honestly, like the whole talking about politics and talking about the creative muse and talking about uh, careers and, and, and the fabulous love ghost, which I will continue to promote to the day is long. Um, but thank you so much. Your turn. Oh, Jeff, this has just been a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me onto the podcast. I've enjoyed every minute of it. You have such good questions. Oh. Uh, I, I really have enjoyed it. Thanks so much for letting me be part. Okay. Goodbye. So long. Click.